raise your hand, and we'll get one to you because I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. And once you open up that Bible, please open it up to the first book of the New Testament, that is the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. We're in Matthew chapter 15. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, if you're kind of new to that, and the reason is because you could kind of take a bunch of verses and stick them together and, and come up with all kinds of crazy ideas, but it's really a, a lot harder to do that when you're actually going straight through text. That's the whole idea. Uh, if, you, if you're new to all of this, the Gospels are the story of Jesus, uh, his death, his resurrection, his ministry here. So it kind of puts you in things. So we're looking at something that took place about 2,000 years ago that gives us a little bit of a time stamp on this. Uh, Jesus is kind of right in the middle, in the heat of his ministry, his three-year ministry. Puts him in a place really where there's going to be, uh, really at this point, there's been a lot of controversy and really a lot of challenge. Uh, the religious leaders of the day have had a real problem with them. And it's kind of good to know, if you've got a problem with religion, if you've got a problem with what you've seen as politics and, and you, you know, people with pointy hats or whatever, and you just have a real problem with it, it's good to know that Jesus did too. Because the whole point of anything that involves religion is supposed to be a relationship with the living God. Anything that interferes with that, if we're going to be honest, really is not what God intended. It's politics. Everything that ushers you deeper into a real relationship with the God who created you to be with him. Well, that's another story altogether. That's actually proper exercise religion. Jesus, well, James would tell us the real religion, at least the kind that God finds acceptable, pure, real, is to care after the widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself unpolluted from the world. In other words, real honest practice would be helping the helpless and staying clean. We are now in chapter 15. Uh, again, we're right kind of at that place where now where the religious leaders have really kind of mounted a frontal assault on Jesus and his teaching. And we pick it up now in verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman from Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and he said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. She answered and said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and he said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. You pray with me, please. Father in heaven, I recognize that we come in here from very different places. And yet you know every atom and molecule that make us. You know every speck of dust under our shoes, every vapor of water in our breath. You know every breath we will breathe to our last. You know every thought we think to its end. Every intention. The heroic things we cling to and the weak things we avoid embracing or even confronting. And you recognize here today, Lord, that 
from so many different cultural backgrounds, from so many different religious backgrounds. You have this supernatural responsibility to speak to every one of us. To the most astute, informed in Scripture, to the person who's never opened a Bible in their life, you know how to speak through and us. So I'm asking exactly that. I'm asking that you captivate us. That you take every one of us and you so grab a hold of our ears and our hearts that we can't look away. We can't turn away. That you block out every distraction and diversion. And that your word would burst open and come alive and grab a hold of us by the throat in a way so that we go, wow, okay, what do I do with this? More than just information, I pray for transformation in each of us. And I pray, God, that you would, in this time now, redeem every second in breath and in depth and in length. And that every one of us would understand, understand your love. And as your gospel goes forth, bring forth fruit. It's so cool to sit here and expect you to do great things. To do them, I pray. I pray you would come upon me with your Holy Spirit so that you would do what I can't humanly do. That you would really connect with every human here. Every ear, every heart, every mind. So that for those who know you would know you better. For those who haven't, that they would know you. And for every one of us to say, wow, this is really what, I'm, what life is like with you. I want that. So meet us in the last time. Bring salvation, encouragement, strength, hope, repentance, conviction. Bring it all here, we pray. And have your way now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I would say, today as it would any day, don't just believe me. You know, never just assume because a guy's got a mic and he calls himself a pastor or whatever, that what he's saying is the truth. That's why you're given a Bible. If you don't own one and, you want, and you're going to read it, take it. Uh, if you're going to use it to prop up your you know, coffee table, then don't. But the point of it is, is that it's sort of like anything. If you read the laws, then you challenge the things to those laws to make sure that they abide within them. I'm going to go from a little bit of a heady direction in regards to this, and we'll move into the heart of the text. Because clearly, even if you're a Christian and you've walked with Christ for quite a while, normally this text can be a bit plaguing to you. Because it really is. It kind of sounds like Jesus is really dissing this gal who's obviously in a lot of trouble. And I want to be able to unpack this in a way that we all kind of go, oh, I get it. I get it. But I want to start, by the way, by saying that this is a bit unique even for Jesus. Not just this confrontation and this sort of interplay between him and this woman, but also, to be honest, that he's really kind of outside of his territory. He's now in the area of Tyre and Sidon. That's what we'll read in the first verse. So go ahead and flash that, you know, really grown-up uh, map that we have there. Because I just want to kind of point out at least what that looks like. Uh, if you're kind of new to things, you know, sort of the, the north is Turkey and then comes Syria, and to the south then is Egypt. Um, that guy actually isn't on a normal map. It isn't like if you went to the country of today, what is Jordan, you'd see this guy. But anyways, uh, here, here's Jerusalem, to give you an idea. And, and up here now is the area of Tyre and Sidon. This area today, uh, this area kind of skirts up north like that, is the area of Lebanon. And for those of you who would be kind of familiar with contemporary 
geography. And Jesus has now traveled, really, in essence, about 50 miles north from the Sea of Galilee. Most of Jesus' ministry takes place in the middle of nowhere. I mean, for us, we kind of think, Galilee, wow, what is that, if you're familiar with Scripture? But really, it isn't like Jesus started his ministry in London. To be honest, the people from the headquarters went to go find him. He really started it all really here, which is just kind of, we might even say like the Lake District. It's kind of a place where it isn't a lot of people. Uh, so Jesus, most of his ministry starts place, takes place here, and he leaves this area. He's just gone here. He's fed about five, he's fed five thousand men in the families, and and really the religious leaders have had a real problem with him. And Jesus, understand, he even left. He wound up in that deserted place because he had heard that John the Baptist had died. That's his cousin, and that's a really well, that's a heavy amount of information to deal with. And it's it's more than just well, my cousin died. That would be enough. But it was also the reality that as John sort of earmarks and sort of landmarks every major stage of Jesus' ministry, John baptizes, then Jesus emerges and baptizes. Then John's put in prison and Jesus does his public ministry, and then John is murdered, and then Jesus really then turns his heart towards the cross, because that becomes his major focal point. And the reason I say that is, is that there's a reality more than just, wow, John the Baptist died. This is now, wow, okay, that cross is really now in my crosshairs. No pun intended. And so with that, when he learns all of this, he's here and he moves over this way, over here to get to a deserted place but the people follow him. Because the people are starving for anything that's a real move of God. I mean, people are starving today for a real move of God. I mean, they, we really want all that power and magnificence and all that stuff. They just want it in some place of someone they don't have to submit to. Let's be honest. I mean, why does witchcraft sound so enticing? Because it makes it sound like you're the boss, and you get all this power, and all this might, and maybe I can get that person to fall in love with me that wouldn't otherwise, or maybe I can get that job or the money or whatever. But really, in the end of it all, we want that power, we want that supernatural stuff. If it weren't the case, none of the movies that we have today would fly. You realize how much of the media is dedicated to that? And we're drawn to that. These people are starving. But they also have sick people with them that they love. And they hear that men are... It's like, imagine if, if we heard today, if you went and touched that baptismal thing, which none of you are going to fit in, uh, you know, it's like, if you just touched that, you'd be made well. Which one of you wouldn't be lying, even if you had a toothache? And they're dragging everyone they can. But Jesus tried to get away, and what he did is he tried to find a deserted place that the people find him. And we read that he did get some time away, but then after that, it says when he emerged and when he came out, he saw these people. As he saw these people, he went and he served them. 5,000 men and their families. Now you're probably aware in the Middle East, people don't have 1.2 children. We're talking about roughly 15 to 20,000 people that show up when Jesus was trying to get alone, to get his head straight, to get with the Father and pray. You ever have those moments? Something hits you and it's so awful. Maybe not, okay, 20,000 people show up, but where you're just, you need to get away. I mean, you're walking through London and it's like all these people and it's a sea of everything and it's like you get the news and you're dealing with life and you're like, I just got to get away from all this. And imagine if you like, you fled to some place in the middle of nowhere and all of London found you and they expected you to serve them. We got a ring here, by the way, just so you know. Uh, Abe, you got something going on. But then Jesus is still trying to get away. So Jesus realizes that in the area of Israel, he's going to have to leave. He's going to have to leave Israel to get away. And he's getting away. And he's getting away. 
and getting away, he gets outside of Israel and heads to Lebanon. Now, there's a countertext to this, for what it's worth, Mark 7 also records this story. And what he says in this first verse kind of really gives us light to this. When he says, he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he couldn't be hidden. You ever have that? When was the last time? Have you ever had something where life was so heavy on you at that moment you even turned off your phone? Just so that people couldn't reach you? But he went into a house and he couldn't be hidden. And that's a bit of a strange thing. Because when you read John 8, you realize that there was a time where Jesus confronted the religious leaders. and They freak out so much they want to stone him in the temple. And then we read he hid himself in their eyes. How Jesus could hide himself from a person who has made themselves his enemy. But he would never hide himself from a need. And though he's in this house trying to get alone, trying to just get his head straight, trying to get right with all of this, and he's got these guys that are hanging out with him, his disciples, even in the midst of this, he couldn't be hidden because there was somebody with a genuine need. And obviously he's got this issue too. Now in context to this, and I can develop a lot, I'll do a little bit more of that next week in regards to the parables and how that plays into all of this that Jesus taught us even a chapter and a half ago. What's interesting is what he had just done that left that brought him to this place. Is that he approached a bunch of religious leaders and understand what's going on. Jesus, you're probably aware of it, Jesus was homeless. I mean, it wasn't like Jesus stayed in the, in the Marriott or the Hilton or any of that. I mean, Jesus went from place to place. And he, people that chose to follow him and said they would, that's what he told them. He says, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's like, hey, look, if you're going to follow me, stop making this place home. And as he went, his disciples that with him, and understand, disciple is just a fancy term. It just means students. Jesus is teaching. He's got students. And they're hungry. So they're rubbing their hands against the wheat and eating it. And the religious leaders that have gone up from Jerusalem now have a real problem with that. You see, they've turned everything into a tradition, including the way you wash your hands. They had a very special way to wash your hands. And if you didn't do it their way, you didn't do it at all. Actually. Now understand what they had done, and this is what can happen in any church, any group, and it's what can really turn off a lot of people and should turn us off too. As you get so caught up in doing things the way you just do them, that you don't realize what part of that's the heart and what part of it's just, well, what you do. There's the practice and there's the purpose. They lost the whole purpose. Not only that, washing's a good thing. Thank you for doing so. I, from, I, from my nose, I can tell you guys washed today. Thank you for that. During the time of the bubonic plague here, the only people who weren't dying, to be honest, were the Jewish people. And they actually called him sorcerers for it. And the reason was is that there's a law that says when you touch a dead guy, you actually have to go and wash. Now for us, that's probably not that big of a problem, right? We kind of get that. But back a couple hundred years ago, that's a different story altogether. So washing is a good thing. I get that. But when you take a tradition and you put it on the same plane as the scripture, now you don't even know what in the world you're doing. Jesus turns, and to get the point, and I'm pointing it into context, this is what Jesus' last confrontation was right before this, because it's actually clearly contrasting this. As he looks at it, he goes, you guys, you have a problem with this breaking tradition, because we, we don't do it your way. You guys break the law. Because scripture says you need to honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment. And, and with that, the reason you're to honor your father and mother, the, the whole point of it is making, making them important. There's a day. They, they wipe your rear end when you were little. When you get older, it'll be your turn. I mean, there's a purpose behind it. 
And he says, you guys have this crazy little thing where you say it's dedicated to God. And if you say it's dedicated to God, well, then clearly you, can, you don't have to do anything with it. So here's your parents. They, they just moved into this little flat. They have no furniture. You've got beds coming out of your head. But you're going to like, oh, I dedicated them all to God, so I can't give them to my family. He says, you're actually breaking the law because you should be honoring your parents. And somehow you think dedicating this to God is actually cooler and is going to be cooler in my eyes than actually helping someone with it. And when I get to that, please hear me in this. It's quite kind of simple. Anything that's dedicated to God is going to be used to help other people. That's the bottom line. You can't say, well, this is God's. Have you heard anyone else? If you've got those cool Christian friends that do this, they're like, this is God's car. This is God's house. This is God's guitar. This is God's whatever the thing you have. This is God's hammer. Whatever it is that you say belongs to him is going to be used to help other people to draw them to him. That's the whole point. So Jesus looks at him and goes, don't you see the irony in this? You guys got these traditions you're trying to keep up. But you're breaking the commandments. Let's, we could boil down all of it. You got the ten. We're down to ten here. You can't even do those. You're not honoring your mother and father. And then he says, you know, Isaiah spoke well of you. Well, he spoke proper of you. Isaiah 29, Paul would tell us, hey, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He's like, oh yeah, listen to what they say. It really sounds lovely. But their hearts, they're like not even in the building. Because as I know it. In other words, they're saying all the right words, but they have a very wrong heart. Interesting, because then we move from all of that to this. We have someone who has all the right heart, but all the wrong words. And interesting, there they weren't honoring their mother and father, but here you have the heart of a broken-hearted mother who's pleading. Do you find that interesting that, John, that Matthew compares this to now? So follow me in this. Jesus has actually left Israel. He's in Lebanon, and he goes there to be alone, and he can't be, and this woman shows up, and she's in a rough spot. And that's what we read here. Now, verse 22, he says, Behold, I think 35 different times in the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to say the word behold. And we kind of read that as, oh, that's a cool literary device. But understand what he's saying is something has impacted this writer so much that, that, let me say it in the simplest sense, there are stories you can tell that when you tell the story, people kind of go and you can kind of chuckle over it. But there are stories you can tell you still feel when you tell it. And I would suggest to you that every time that Matthew says behold, when he tells that story, he still feels it. You do. He looks at this situation and goes, oh man, we should have been there for this one. There we were, tucked away in some place, trying to get away. And this woman shows up. She sees him in a bad way. It tells us here that a woman came, and it tells us not just a woman, which by the way, culturally in the Middle East, such a woman shouldn't be speaking to a man, nor a man of a strange woman, that they were strangers, uh, and behind closed doors at all. But she also happens to be a Canaanite. Now, they're from the, he's in the area of Tyre and Sidon, and I can go through all of that background, but for the sake of time, let's just say this, that what's clear is Tyre, actually, there was a king that was there back in King David's day, that's a thousand years prior, that really loved King David, and by the way, really loved his son, too. Gave him lots of wood to help build David's house and the temple as well. I mean, there was definitely some form of political union back then. But the fascinating thing, and it always seems like the area of Tyre seems to be, in essence, a real pleasant place, actually, says Hosea 9. It's interesting, in Acts 21, that Paul will land there on his way to Jerusalem, and there's a whole bunch of believers there that help him out. In fact, and they seem to be really close. I mean, he lands there, they hang out, they, they go to the shore where, where Paul's going to leave, and they cry, and they kneel, and they pray at the shore. 
This is an intimate relationship. So I'm, I'm not really sure in all of that, somewhere in that tire also, though, you need sort of joins with Sidon. And Sidon, on the other hand, always seems to be trouble. And Sidon is really the thing that kind of colors our whole text here. See, Sidon on the other side of that, by the way, what's important about it is all the way back in Genesis 10, we find that Sidon was the son of Canaan. And it can't be more of a Canaanite than being someone's son. It's the northern border in Genesis 49 to Zebulun, one of the 12 tribes. So it's, in essence, the northern area for that, just above Galilee. It tells us that they dwelt secure in Judges 18, kind of like Switzerland, you might say. There was still lumberjacks in 1 Kings 5. But the one thing we know Sidon from the most was from their little cutie that they sort of tossed into the mix back in 1 Kings 11. Or I'm sorry, 1 Kings, if you will, chapter 16. And the reason is in 11, they tell us, by the way, who they worship. They worship a god named, well, a god named Eshtoreth. And Eshtoreth, by the way, was the goddess of pleasure. They submitted to what they called Baal, which is the, the, the Canaanite god. And it's important to know Baal means master. But it was a fascinating thing because many cultures still adopt this mindset. And the idea was that this guy, by the way, was supposed to live on Mount Carmel through a lightning bolt. That's why the whole Elijah story. But it was, so this guy was sort of the master of everything. And if you could get to be somebody through your practices, often that meant you cut yourself and you did all these horrible things to yourself, but if you could get to be at the table of the leaders, you could command Baal to do whatever you wanted, and he would do it for you. That was the key of this, was you were the master of the master, and then the master did your bidding. Funny how much Christianity can try to do that, and it's so not scriptural. But in chapter 16, we know a girl, by the way, who happens to be the princess, the, the, the daughter of the king, and she is, the, the guy's name, by the way, is Et Baal. Et Baal means I'm with, or I stand with, or I'm for Baal. And her name is Jezebel. So some of you know her already, that little cookie. Jezebel was a gal who, of course, hired 850 prophets in Israel because she marries the king of Israel of the day, and she brings out stuff. But notice, if you look at their interplay, if you, and I challenge you to read it on your own, she rules him. I mean, it's like the king is just like, yes, ma'am, whatever you say, yes, ma'am. And, she, and she's like, don't worry, I'll handle it. Oh, why are you sulking? You don't get this vineyard you want. I'll take care of it. Don't worry, I know a guy. I mean, she's doing that. And she's really playing Baal the way she would. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when I look at Sidon, that's what I see. I see a place where people worship this God for hire like a mercenary. They call themselves the master, and don't you dare tell me what to do. What's interesting is there was still a widow there that was still in need. She was in a place called Zelophah. And we know Elijah even went to in 1 Kings 17. Even in the midst of this horrible culture, God saw a woman in need and still took care of her. Now, take that mindset and put it in a woman. And she comes to Jesus because she hears that he takes care of everything. Lepers, not a problem. AIDS, no issue. Zika, not a problem. Dead raises him. That's beautiful. Demon. That's a whole new. That's a whole new category. Even the church gets most of their doctrine from movies. It drives me mental. You know, there are places in the world I'd say, well, demon possession. Believe it or not, that still happens. People are still become possessed. 
the hearing camera, and I don't have to say that. I think we all have seen at least one person who's on that person's more than likely possessed. Some people, we just go, that guy's weird. But we get those people, and you go, okay, but that person, that, that person's way more than just a little off. That person's a little bit more than just most of the bulbs in the chandelier and so on. Now, no one tells us how. No one tells us what happened to this daughter in the first place to make this happen. But mothers, those of you in the room who are mothers, you have a daughter who's gone off the rails. Now, she's going to say, not just my daughter is possessed, but my daughter is severely possessed. Like, oh, that's just a mild possession, that's not that big of a deal. This is like, this is massive. But what would it be like to be that mother? Any mother that has a heart that sees a daughter go off the rails. Is there a mother in this room that wouldn't look and torture themselves with introspection, revealing what you could have done, what you should have done, different? Hey, when your kids just act up and just become human, don't you beat yourself up for it? You go, man, if only I hadn't said that, or only... Is if somehow God recruited you to be perfect to be a mother? And we don't know where the dad is. He's never in the story. Now, the worship of Baal was one that certainly invited, by the way, possession. And I have no idea whether the mother was in any way involved in this or not. I don't know. We don't have the text to tell us. But I do find interesting what she does say to Jesus is have mercy on me. Did you notice that? Not just have mercy on my girl. Man, there's a mother's pain that I'll never understand. I understand that much. And she looks, and it's her daughter. The image of her. And what she sees is her daughter is helpless. She is out of control. This isn't somebody who's just making a couple bad choices. This isn't somebody who's sowing their wild oats. This is a girl who now is helpless. And the mother feels helpless to do anything about it. Have you ever felt that, moms? Where you've looked at your girl and you've just gone, what? Is there anything I can do to change this? What can I do? And you feel completely armless. Like there's nothing. I, I, don't know, I don't know if there's anything I can do. And you cry and pray and just hope. Somehow this is not forever. But every moment like that feels like forever. And you feel helpless and you feel weak and you feel defeated. Yeah, this is not what I intended. But she comes to Jesus and she has a genuine need. And what Jesus does is he's going to really fish out of her that heart that's so amazing. Even though she uses the wrong words at the moment. No, not wrong for everyone, but certainly for her. Interesting, because what Jesus did with the last group, which was the religious leaders, he fished out their heart and showed that it sunk, even though they said good words. So look at this with me for a moment. Mark says, by the way, she was a Greek, Syrophoenician by birth. Greek means that was the culture she lived in. She lived in a very pagan culture. Syrophoenician means she was Syrian, if you will, by speech. Phoenician by bloodline. And she says in verse 22, there's three different statements she's going to say. All of them will have the word Lord in it. In verse 22, notice it says, she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But it doesn't even answer her word. 
Ever have that? You crying out. Notice, by the way, it doesn't say that she politely said. She cried out. This is so welled up inside of her that by the time she gets to Jesus, it explodes out of her. I've watched that with couples. They kind of tuck it in and tuck it in and tuck it in and then it explodes. It's never pretty. Here's the situation where the mother's being tortured because she's watching someone she loves and she's watching them die in front of her. And, and she looks and by the time she gets to Jesus, she's like, that's, that's the point of it. No, we're in, a, we're in a room. We're trying to hide out, right? Jesus is with this guy, and he's trying to hide out. And this woman comes into this quiet room, and we're all talking away. She's like, oh, my God! That's where she's at in this situation. That kind of ruins the feng shui of the moment, doesn't it? Thought you were sleeping through this? Ain't no chance. And so Jesus, by the way, he doesn't even answer her. Now we know by the end of this story, she's going to get what she wants. And so I have to look and I realize as I look at this, God's silence isn't his rejection. God's silence is sequestering something else. So what's wrong with what she said? Son of David, then What a beautiful statement. Matter of fact, Matthew, the gospel, is going to tell us that son of David's statement more than the rest of the Bible combined. I get this statement. Because it goes all the way back a thousand years before Jesus when that King David fella, 2 Samuel 7, says, You know, God, I've got this weird situation. I've got this big, beautiful house, and you're like camping in my front yard. I've got you in a tent. Well, he's in a God's in a tent, but all of this furniture that he knew he really wanted to build a house for, he's like, Let me build you a house. I mean, all the things that people want from God. God, I just want your blessings. And I've shared this because please hear my heart on this. What you really want, what your destination is, is what you love. The things that get you there, at best, is what you love less. And if what you, what you really want from God is His blessings, when you get the blessings, you bail on God because you got what you were looking for. The church, well, you got off most of you probably at Chalk Farm Station. Because the train got you that far, and then from that point you got to walk that little bit to get here. This was the destination you got to. But because this was the destination, when you got to Chalk Farm, you got off the train because you didn't need it anymore. And if God is your train to get what you want, you'll get off of this the moment you get what you're looking for. The worst thing you can do is give you what you're looking for. What she's looking for here, though, is him, strangely enough, in this. And understand, she cried out to him, this son of David. David looks at him, when you ask David, well, what about this? The one guy God says, now there's a guy, not after my stuff, not after my power, not after my glory, he's after my heart. And I think, wow, whatever that guy's doing, I want to do that. But then you ask him, David, what do you really want? And he says in his own songs, he says, one thing I've desired of the Lord, and that I'm going to chase after. I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. God's like, God, to David, what do you really want? David's like, can I just move in with you? So David wants to build him a house. And then this, this prophet comes in named Nathan. He sort of, that's the first time we meet him. And Nathan goes, wow, that sounds like a great idea, Dave. Go on, go for it, buddy. And as he walks out, God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Nate, I know that sounded good, but it's not the right thing. You need to go and tell him, see, David's a man of blood. He's killed a lot of people, and you need to understand this whole, like, my kingdom is not going to be built on other people's blood. It's going to be built on my own. Boy, could you imagine if every religion knew that? Guys wouldn't be blowing themselves up on trains, on buses. Well, hear me on this. 
So Nathan had to go back and eat crow. He said, oh, serve humble pie to David. Go, look at, you know, it sounded really good and your heart was in the right place, but you're not the guy for it. And I love what David does. What David does is he realizes that if he can't do it, his heart is so to build this house for God, if he can't do it, he's going to make it easier on the guy who's done it. And say, so let that be the body. If you have a real heart to evangelize, but you can't get out there like you'd like, then make it easier on the guy who is. If you really want to see people in that, that you know, discipled and built up and strengthened, and you can't get there to do it like you want, then make it easier on the people who are. Because in the end, God still attributes that place to David and Solomon. So he says, I'll tell you what, instead of you building me a house, I'll build you a house. And I'm going to raise up from you a king that is from everlasting in his throne to everlasting. This guy's never had a beginning. That can't just be Solomon, his son, who's going to build the temple. And so they looked for a guy that God would inhabit as someone with no beginning or end. And they called him the son of David. Because he'd have to come from that lineage. Interesting, the first verse of Matthew says, the lineage of Jesus, the son of David. He's the fulfillment of this promise that was a, a millennium before this. So we look for the Son of David. Now, for Jewish people, they knew that because this was Jewish text. So when blind men called out to Jesus to blind men, they said, have, you know, have mercy on me, Son of David, because I want to see if that makes sense. It's Jewish lingo. But put that in the mouth of a Syrian Phoenician woman, she doesn't even know what in the world she's saying. It's terms for her. But it's like learning the script to an end. No wonder why Jesus doesn't answer. Now what about you? I mean, when was the last time you talked to God like shit? From your heart? Hey, with all reverence and honor, I agree. Have you ever tried to learn someone else's prayer thinking it'll get you somewhere? You know, some of you are actors or actresses, you know how this is. Imagine if you thought, man, that guy, he, when he prays, things really happen. I mean, he shouts, or he screams, or he speaks in a language. He doesn't even know what he's saying. He's like, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda. And I'm listening to this. Or, he's, or he does, oh, he does that kind of thing. Or he does a vroom. I mean, I've been all around all those guys. You know, it's like really mild. Hi, welcome to our church. I'm really glad you come. Would you like to pray? Oh, what just happened to this guy? You know, and I, I realize where that kind of... But then you're like, you have those guys that's like, Oh, God, great and mighty, bring us thou hither, thine, 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 promise. The guy like, doesn't even know what anything he's saying. Hey, look, at it. if that's the way you speak, that's awesome. But most of us don't. And we think, if I could just learn the script, well, then clearly God's going to give me his attention. But even if you didn't know God and you were watching someone pray like that, you thought, wow, I have to learn to do that to get God's attention? Wow, that's a lot of work. I have a hard time. Bro, yo, bro, what's up, bro? I have a hard time just talking. And this is why I got to do this. Good luck. And she's learned this language. But listen, okay, we can kind of joke about it because, well, we wouldn't dare do that. But when was the last time you tossed around in Jesus' name like that was the deal closer? God, give me, 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 in Jesus' name. And God's like, no, 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 no. Oh, you said in Jesus' name. Now I have to do it. Because it says if you ask anything in my name, like in my name meant that you just said that and that was going to close it. Imagine God's silence in heaven to hear us pray. 
and we throw out something like that, and you can see God going, wow. That was it. Now, interesting, because what happens is Jesus doesn't answer yet, and notice what happens next. Now, understand, this is Jesus taking some time to draw out her heart. I mean, imagine if she had gotten what she was looking for right there, and then she went back to the people where she came from. What do you think she'd tell them? This is what you have to do. Learn this. Have mercy. Now say it with Have mercy. Make sure you've got that mercy going with you. Have mercy on me. Oh, and don't forget to tell him who his dad is. I don't know. Who, I don't, they say it's Joseph, but they say it's David. I don't get it either. But he's the son of David, so just go with me on it. Son of David. Make sure. I mean, imagine how you do that. You could do that at church. You show up. You're brand new. You have to accept this gift of Jesus. You don't know what the heck to do with it. And you see someone else, and this is what they do, and they get on their knees, or they raise their hands. Well, that's awesome. And you go, oh, okay. Uh, and you're doing all this stuff. You don't even know what in the world you're doing. You know, it's interesting. In America, there was a time, and it was only about 10 years ago, where everybody that talked talked like this. You hear that, right? It's not Jesus. It's Jesus. There was always something at the end of your letters, right? I want to tell you something. you got to give. you got to repent. What in the world was that? How did that happen? tell you how it happened. Forty years before that, people talked on something called a radio. Some of you know, most of you know, it was like TV without a screen. And you listened. But back then, it sounded like this when you were tuning in a station. You didn't just punch in a number on your phone. It was like, and then the, then the guy spoke. If you got it right. And usually by that point, you put like an aluminum foil on your head. You stood with one hand like this. Your coat hanger out the window, hoping there would be no lightning. Right? Some of you are... Now, the reason I say that is, is with all of that happening, that when the preachers preached on the air, they had to make sure they over-enunciated their words because you couldn't hear them clearly. Because you didn't want to say, for instance, praise the Lord, because lore is a story. Praise the Lord. Right? And you don't say God gives you eternal life. He gives you eternal life. <laughs> now the problem is, is that the guys who did that, that made it to the radio, some of those guys were really gifted, anointed guys. So someone said, well, if I need to learn how to preach, I need to do it like that. So now they started, they started speaking, but it's like we can hear you pretty clearly now. And now you can have these giant like, jumbotrons behind you to put the words if you need to. But we get it. But what happens is we learn that that's the way we say it. Billy Graham talks about the two fingers. Have you seen that? You need to come. And so you guys see guys that are like, I want you to come. They're not even from the south, right? And it's like, hi, nice to meet you. Hey, what are you doing? I'm doing okay. You need to come. It's like because you've learned this from someone. And what's amazing is we turn that to God and we go, oh, man. Wouldn't that freak you out? So let's say you Jamie... Just here's this here's this thing. For, I'm just going to have fun with Jamie for a second. Say this Jamie is really really drawn to some particular actress, and let's say that she's like very very Spanish, or even better, she's Mexican. And as she is, you know, uh, and he's like really drawn to it. But he meets this girl, and she's really an awesome godly gal. But she kind of knows that somehow in it that he kind of likes this. You know, he's like really appreciating this particular actress. So this is like. You know, British gal from like, let's just say from like Sussex, 
you know, starts running around, hey, man, what's going on, man? How you doing? And she's like, what? what? Is there something wrong with you? Is there, what, what happened to you? No, man, we're going to get a burrito, man. We'll be cool, man. We're going to ride on the fancy. And he's looking, he's going, what happened to the girl I fell in love with? And then we look and we think, well, that's clearly the case with us, right? I would grow some long hair and a beard. I need to eat bugs. Live in the wilderness. And God will. God's like, look, I want a relationship with you. I want you to go and put on a show. Well, look, here's the problem. Man, all you've got in your relationship is a performance. How much do you trust the person even cares? If you've got to perform to win, you've got to perform to keep. So, he doesn't give her a word there. Now, I'll pick this up because we need to close this around, but it says, listen, he answered now to word, verse 23, when his disciples came then and urged him, saying, send her away, she cries out after us, which tells us, by the way, she's looking for help from anywhere she could find it. And if she can't get it from Jesus, maybe she can get it from one of these guys. Could you imagine her turning to Peter? Hey, have mercy on me, son of David. Are you son of David? I don't know. Have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Have mercy on me, son of David. I mean, imagine how that must look to Jesus now. And they're like, and I love this. The guys are like, you know, she is driving me mental. Get this chick out of here. Which is interesting, because please understand, never let God's people, or those that claim to be God's people, get in the way of your walk with God. Because quite often, to be honest, human beings, when they see a needy person, we flee. Jesus isn't fleeing. They're like, man, I really would love this situation done with. But see, Jesus is, wants to deal with so much more than just a girl with a problem. With a mother that's really having an issue with her daughter. Jesus really wants to deal with her, too. Because he loves her, and that's her, her daughter. And he's got something to do with that. And if she does this, now, no, please hear me for a moment. My mother, when, when, when my twin sister and I were born, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. <clears throat> and we watched her road. My first 11 years were years where we watched a vibrant, beautiful woman. And I'm not saying that because she was my mother. Everyone else would tell me that. I never saw that side of her. I know that she was in the Philippines with uh, her first husband. She had married someone before my father. And they, well, it was Cary Grant's Civil Air Patrol, I think it was a movie, and they were scouting for uh, the prettiest girl on the island. And they went throughout the entire island and they found my mother, who clearly looks nothing Filipino. She was like a thin Marilyn Monroe. And they decided to use her in the movie. She pulls up in the car and this is the whole scene that we get her in. She was, and she was vibrant and feisty and full of fight. I look at my daughter and I think I see a lot of her. She married a man that was very, very confused and very angry. She didn't want to leave the kids in. And for 11 years, she sought whatever she could to not have that happen. I remember crystal balls in my house. Sands. A whole bit. She had me call the, the psychic hotline. I called. I was nine. Imagine Ruthie doing this. You know, I called. It was about nine. And they're like, hi, my name is. And it's like Celestina. It's always something like, you know, in the universe. Hi, this is Celestina. What's your name and when's your birthday? And I just, I mean, as a kid, I just went, uh, you're the psychic, why don't you tell me? And she hung up on me. That was the end of my whole conversation. 
gave us a lot of money, by the way, so that he could pay back the money. But she was really determined not to leave. For her, the most important thing really did appear to be her children, of which I was one. And I watched her fight. And I watched her fight. I was told, by the way, she did give her life to Jesus. But I was told that by my older brother. Why haven't you seen me for 20 years? I never saw that side. But I did see a very desperate side. Proud and desperate. The pride kept her from showing desperation on the outside. But you see it in those moments of weakness when you weren't in the room but you walked by an open door. The reason I say that is kind of get this girl, but I think every one of us gets this girl somewhere. Somewhere in it, she's helpless in a situation and she wants to love someone and it hurts her to look. It hurts her to see her. And she's crying out in the language she thinks will get God's attention and he's not answering her yet. And then she turns to the church. She turns to someone and she's in there like, I don't know what else to do. Imagine how confusing it is. Here's the cool part. She just didn't stop. She didn't let that stop. So, interesting, and hear me on this. So they say, send her away, right? And if they send her away, she cries after her. Verse 24, it says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the lost house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, who is he saying that to? If he has to answer, the last person who spoke were his disciples. And please understand, when you speak Hebrew, the difference between a question and an answer is your inflection. When when uh, Pilate says to Jesus, you're a king, if he's speaking in any Semitic language, he'd be like, you're a king or you're a king. It could be either. I could just see Jesus looking at his students going, so, you sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel alone? Was that it? Now they don't have an answer to it. Notice they don't say anything after that. That's the end of them in the story. But notice what it says in verse 25. Then she came and worshipped him. Saying, Lord, Interesting. It never said that she worshipped him before this when she was saying the whole son of David is king. But now she, well now she does. But I get it. Because now she's pouring forth her heart. Now it's not just some really cool little script that she had learned to try to get God's favor. Now she's just pouring forth, please hear me, she's pouring forth her pain. It's interesting. Faith is not established in prayer. Faith is solidified in pain. We trust that to her, and she's like, please help me, please. And I like this because though the term is Lord, and it's a term that we, I mean, the term Lord was a very casual term. Matter of fact, some of you, Spanish and other languages, we use the term like curios, or or we say señor, or señora. Um, They're really just terms of respect, but it isn't like we say the Lord. We'd have to put what's called a definite article. The makes it unique. But I remind you, here's a gal from Tyre and Sidon where everything's about getting your God or your thing to sort of sit, to serve you at the table. There's the whole idea. As long as you can get there and prove yourself worthy, at that point the only thing left is to get them to do your bidding. Well, now he's starting, she's starting to come and she's like, I'm in real need here, I need this service. Well, there's one thing left. And there's a difference between Lord and the Lord and Lord and Master. And the difference is, are you just a lord over things and I can get you to serve me? Or are you my personal boss now? Are you my master? And I remind you, the word for master, for her, would be the word Baal. So he turns and he's going to fish it out in a strange way. He says in verse 26 then, 
Well, it's not good to take the children's food or bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, interesting, when the Mark text is used, and that's Mark 7, 27, it says, look, let the children be filled first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, now, wait a minute, where do you put yourself at the table? Do you just naturally assume you have a place at the table? And I'm just to do your bidding? Is that where you think you are? Is it really right to starve the children to feed the pets? Now, I understand there are different words for, for, for children, by the way, and the term children that's actually used here for her, about her daughter, this woman's daughter, is a term basically between the time that you've just been weaned to the time where you've reached that time where you become a woman, so to speak, as a lady, where you hit your cycle. That time in between is the time that qualifies this daughter. So she's maybe, at most, 12, 13, if she's sort of a late bloomer. She's somewhere at least three years old, more than likely the case. But the term here for dog, and it's a little dog, I get that. But we understand, for us, we kind of get the idea that in Western culture, dogs are cute and they're cuddly, and that's all we have for them. You know, although we actually took in a, a, a baby dog, you know, a, a puppy that we didn't know was actually a moose, and in like, a, a, in like three weeks, the thing actually grew to the size of basically a lorry in our house. I mean, it was crazy. All of a sudden, it was like... I was like, well, then this thing could take it down a bear. We realized we were in trouble in our house. But understand, in the Middle East, dogs were vomit vacuums. That's what you had them for, for the most part, unless you were a well-endowed house. Otherwise, you basically ate until you threw up, and then after that, you called in a little spot, and you took care of it. That was it. Except for the rampant dogs that ran outside, because the dogs that ran outside were, of course, wild dogs, and you can see them all through Europe and the Middle East. We get that. However, you wouldn't take a puppy and train it to eat up your vomit. That's, by the way, just a general dog. But when you took a, a, a dog from its child, from where it was, it was a puppy, that means you took it as a pet. You took it as something close. I get that. So what is Jesus doing by fishing this out of her? What he's turning to is going to look at, where do you put yourself at the table? This is a Jewish teacher looking at a girl as the right heart, but the, long, the wrong words for her. And he looks at you and goes, am I just another servant in your cavalcade then of people to serve you for your needs? Or are you actually willing to put yourself underneath me where you belong? And that's the offensive part here in this room, isn't it? We're about to pray. Did you realize... We all love this whole Savior bit. I mean, it takes a bit of humility to say, all right, God, I get it. Look, at, I don't want to have to deal with the whole fact that I'm a sinner and my friends would laugh at me if I was really honest. But let's face it, we've all done wrong, we've all thought wrong, we've all thought wrong. I mean, that's just honest. I mean, if you don't actually approach that, really you're lying to yourself. But the idea of sending Jesus to die on the cross if his death was the only part of this, then I get the idea that what you need is a Savior. And we hand this off as call it Christianity where it's like, you just need to invite Jesus in your heart to be your Savior. But that's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is that He didn't just die. I don't, I don't serve a dead Savior. He also resurrected as Scripture promised three days later, which separates Him from all of the other guys that ever said He had a right to a religion. And then when He rose again on the third day, He demands to be more than Savior. He demands to be Lord. And that's the part, the reason we don't tell people is because we know that offends people because it offends us. And we're Christian. I mean, to tell them, look, you need to do that one S word. It's funny, we can cuss and it doesn't offend us as much, but you say the word submit and all of our skin crawl. You've got to actually put yourself under this God because He made you, He wants you, but He wants to do so much more than just have you sit at the table and let Him serve you. What He really wants is He wants to be the reinventor of your life. Aren't you tired of life the way you have it? Fighting so hard and getting nowhere? Feeling empty, 
tired of that? Hoping another relationship or another thing. And if I could just nail down this vibe and this job and this position and this thing, then sooner or later I'm going to be cool with life? Aren't you tired of it by now? Are you too proud to admit it? And Jesus is like, look at I'm not, I just don't want to pop in. Here's your get out of hell. Free card, I'll see you on the other side. Go live someplace and not know me. He didn't create you for that. He created you to be with him. And he loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. That's the point. But for that, you need to understand, the Bible says, if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's in the confession of the Lordship of him. I'm a savior And we're in for a rude awakening if that's what we think we have going for us. Because in the end of it all, we're just as guilty as this woman if we think, I just want to sit at the table and tell you to do whatever I want you to do. You can go to churches, Jeff, that'll teach you that. You just write it on a piece of paper, stick it on your wall, and you say, God, in Jesus' name, that's it. The Bentley, the house in Chelsea, whatever it is, or, you know, or England to win the World Cup, whatever it is. You just demanded of God, well, what happens when someone else from another country is demanding the same thing? But please hear me as we wrap this around to pray. Hey, this makes me uncomfortable too. But I'm not going to be apologetic about it. Because it's the truth. And the truth is just the truth whether I like it or not. And the truth is, me being the Lord of my own destiny killed me. Let's be honest. You're saying, I, I demand to be, and, and oh yeah, but no one, I, shouldn't, I can't have my friends see me as weak. Isn't there a greater strength in being honest? Isn't there a greater weakness in lying to yourself, thinking you're actually all that when you're not? Because somewhere down the line, like it or not, you are destined for a head-on collision with the reality. And it's going to cause the blunt force trauma that's either going to send you spinning down or you're not going to be moved because you've already dealt with it. So she says, Lord, help me. He's like, so? Where are you at on the table? This bread for kids. He's like, I don't even need that. Look at me. I'm just happy to be under the table, and I'll take whatever you cost me. The crumbs in my hand. Interesting, twice, Jesus seems to be amazed at someone's faith. There's a centurion and this woman, Syrophoenician. What did they have in common? Neither were Jewish. He was amazed, by the way, at the lack of people's faith, and they were Jewish. Now, I'm not picking on Jewish people, because that's not it at all. It was his people. Today, would he find more faith in somebody who doesn't go to church, that doesn't claim to know Christ, but he just reveals himself to him? Would he find it here? Should we find it here? So he looks. And imagine for him, it's not like Jesus just goes, he got what he wanted. He wants to affirm something more than he looks and goes, oh, woman. And here's our problem. Unless you're from the South, there's no term we have with you. There was, 100 years ago, so we'd say that this, that person's a lady. I was born in Chicago, spent most of my years in California. But I remember in Chicago, there were terms like broad. Not a nice term. That means that was a girl. She was female, but she wasn't very nice. She wasn't the kind of person you want your parents to Oh, that broad. I never said that. That was never me because I didn't like that stuff. But you kind of knew that was the opposite of a lady. But it was somebody that actually, well, we'd use a term to use pretty and beautiful. It's a term we try to use in the house. Somebody that's just naturally, physically attractive, but beautiful. Somebody that has to be inside out. But a term of respect, African culture has it, South has it in America. There's a term where you use, and it's a reference to someone in respect. 
And it's exactly what Jesus said. If you remember in John 2, his mother, Martin's his woman. Is it like, woman? It's like, m'lady, madam, whatever the term would be that was its respect. And this woman that wasn't even Jewish, that came in to plead because her daughter is possessed, severely so, according to Jesus looks at her and he can still respect her. And I imagine for a mother who's watched her daughter fly off the rails, who's beat herself up over the choices she could think she's made to help save her. In fact, maybe she did, maybe she didn't, we don't know. Imagine Jesus looking at you and giving you a dignity back. I mean, what mother doesn't get some part of her value from her faith? When it's when you first start to love, give me dignity. Man, that is Nice job. I understand faith, pistucho, it just means trust. Let's start with the trust. Well, Stop crying out to the guys. They're not going to help you. Because Jesus didn't have to go over, see the girl, and wave some holy water on her, and spin upside down, and hold up a cross or a relic or something. He didn't even have to be there. He said, it's done. Go home. And by the way, apparently she has enough faith to just leave them. She doesn't go, like, can I have your number in case this doesn't work out and I can call you again? Then, you know, are you, no, are you on Facebook? No, I think I mean, none of them. She just goes home. And how did, how did these guys even know? How does Matthew even know to write it down? Well, and found her daughter just fine. So please hear me as we go to prayer. We're wrapping this up. For you, for me. This is a story of something that took place a few thousand miles away a couple thousand years ago. Of a person that most of us in this room now make a claim to actually have a relationship with this guy. Now, that does sound mental, let's be honest. He lived thousands of miles away. He died a couple thousand years ago. And I really, and he talks to me. Now, under any other context, that would actually be unhealthy. But it's more than a, gra- a, a grave, and it's more than a cross. It's an empty grave. It's a resurrected Lord that called out to me by name, and you too, if you listen. And say, hey, what burden are you carrying? What things that when you think about tear you down? You think you're used, you're damaged, you're not what you could be. What things do you still torture yourself over, the defeats that you still run to your head that you feel every time you think of them? Where are those at? You don't have to be a girl for that, and guys do it too. But not with any fancy language. But the words of your heart. Would you say, no, again, I'm not recruiting you into my campaign. I'm surrendering this mess to you for you to reinvent it. Because when you do, you transform. That's the whole message of the cross. Because he took the mess that you are in me and he died on the cross to pay for it. Then he rose again to say, now you don't have to do that mess. You can do someone brand new. Let me make you. And look at the God, same God that flung the universe into the space. And we get these beautiful things and told the mountains where they were and the seas where they were to be. And these really cool fish we're still discovering 
right? I mean, have you seen these spiders now that have these like peacock things behind them and they move and it wiggles like a jiggle head? They just discovered those, by the way, in these last couple of years, you know? And those fish, those ones with the really cool glowy faces, right? And the little things, like, and then the fish, the, 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 you know, John's like, ah, 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 ah. And you go, oh, that's new. Because we're just learning how to get that deep in the ocean and God's had them there waiting for us to find. And the jellyfish that look like marquees, you know, it's like the lights go around like this. And this is the same God that you want to hand your life to. Imagine what he would do with it. When he took on the central coast of California to take smog after the 4th of July celebration, with all due respect, friends, uh, where there's pollution from all the fireworks, but then the sun hits it and it turns into these amazing colors and it becomes this crazy sunset because he took that pollution and he turned it into something and he shined his light on it. Imagine what happens when you had him here. So here's my prayer as we pray now. Let's say you're a Christian then. And by the way, what I mean by that is you've given God permission then to take over your life. You've accepted the gift of Jesus at the cross. You've declared the Lord. If that's you today, my prayer is well, let's get more genuine with our faith. Be more honest. We don't have to present someone that's like, we're no Marvel superhero to God. We're actually the one in distress that we have to say. But he doesn't mind that. Let's stop pretending we're so awesome and let God be awesome too. And that'd be great. Imagine what would happen to you if that happened. Let's say you're not sure if you've ever said yes to you. Sure you haven't. I'll invite you to. I'm not going to hear it. Don't embarrass you. I'm not going to make you stand up, come forward, and do all that. Though I'm not against that either. But I'm inviting you to make that choice today. Hey, that sounds foreign. That sounds threatening. Cool. It's foreign and threatening for all of us. But look at what you're saying yes or no to. God, to pour forth his love on you, to cleanse you from all of your mistakes and regrets and foolishness, and actually make a masterpiece of your life. That's the choice you need to make. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for what you've done in it for all the things that could have been shared and weren't. I think, Jesus, how you said to the religious leaders, as you quoted Isaiah, that in vain they worshipped you, that all of their worship was for no profit, for no real benefit. And yet this woman worships you, and it's all profit. And the difference was where their heart was. And I pray first for every believer here, God, that we would stop making just traditions and practices and stuff, when we do that, we somehow forget the purpose for the principle or for the practice. And we kind of nudge you out of the relationship just to do stuff. Please forgive us for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would get our hearts right with you, that our words would be real, genuine, and that you'd make us more like you. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, look at Forget about anyone around you. Forget about your pride for a moment that could keep you from taking the love and the help and the grace that God wants to give you. He loves you because, he, and because he's loved, not because you're in there. Same with me. What I want to do is I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you to listen. And if this prayer resonates with your heart now, and you get it, 
and your heart's pounding and you're freaking out because you realize the choices to be made. You recognize in this moment you want to say yes. Well, hear the prayer, and at the end, maybe it's the first time you've ever said something like this, I ask you just to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, hey, you know what? Yeah, let that be my prayer. Here's the prayer. God in heaven, as much as I would rather not admit it, I'm a mess. I try to make myself look like I'm all that, but my heart is very different. And I've made horrible mistakes. I've done really wrong things. And I'd like to think they're not wrong, and I'd like to pretend, but there's something awesome in coming clean, and I just want to come clean with you and say, I know you know that it's not good. And I lay it before you now. And if you really, really do want me, mess and all, if you really do want to wash me clean and take all of this stuff and take it out of me and get it out of me, you showed that by having Jesus die on the cross for me. You really want to offer me a brand new life, one that really, one that really is full of your love and peace and joy and a relationship with you. And that does I don't I don't get it all, but I get that much. And you want to make my life a masterpiece? Then I recognize I'd be foolish to say no. So I ask right now. You to take me. Make me right. Make me alive. Make me free. Make me clean. Make me whole. Make me yours. I know as hard as it is, I declare Jesus is so much more than just the person who served me to make me know, to forgive me my sins, to give me heaven. But as I hand my life to you, I recognize that you've been the one making me something brand new, beautiful, masterpiece. And with that, I hand you my life. Who I am, what I want to be, you know it all. I'll make it right with you now. Please. I give myself to you. And even as my heart is racing and my parts of me want to fight that, I recognize this is so right. So I say yes. Here I am, I'm yours. Jesus. And if you agree with that prayer today, as we say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers. I pray for those who may have prayed today that you fill them with the joy of your presence and show them that there's more joy in heaven over one person who says yes to you than a million others who would just live a religious life without you. So, as we sing one last song and dismiss, Solidify that choice in them and show them how you want to transform them.